Well, we are the last in our long series in the book of Luke this afternoon. Uh, and so we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 24. And we're also going to uh, kind of tip over into Acts chapter 1 as well. So Luke, some of you may be aware, wrote both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he wrote them uh, for one person uh, primarily, but in God's providence for all of our benefit. Uh, but he wrote them to a man called Theophilus uh, that he would be convinced of what he had heard about the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, and as we come to the end of Luke chapter 24, we, we find an account of what's called the ascension. And then Luke gives us another account of the ascension in Acts chapter 1. And that's why we're going to kind of straddle both chapters today, because both are important for us to see and to understand. So as we come to the end of this journey we've been on, on the road with Jesus, we're going to spend time looking at the ascension and why it's important to us. So as Jesus came to literally to the end of his earthly ministry, the, the road that he'd been on was completed. Mission accomplished at the cross. Resurrected. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. And then he goes, ascends to heaven to be with the Father. And that's what we're going to pick up today. So ascension is a funny word, isn't it? It's not a word that we commonly use. You know, there are lots of words that we talk about in church, and we've got a decent idea what that word means, because it's in our everyday vocabulary. Ascension, not so much. Um, so just so that we're all clear, ascension means to go up or rise to an important position. And in this context, we're talking about Jesus going up or ascending to his throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven after his resurrection. And throughout the history of the church, there's actually been a great deal, rightly, of focus and celebration on the ascension. There's a, a certain Sunday, Ascension Sunday, that in more traditional churches they would celebrate every year. And I think sometimes in churches like ours, where we don't have a, a kind of set calendar that we work through in quite the same way. We can miss things like the ascension and its significance for us today. And so we're going to dig into it because I think the ascension is one of the most significant events in Luke's gospel. I think it would be impossible to overstate the importance of the ascension and so we're going to get some time looking at it today because it's so significant, in fact, that Luke wrote about it, as I just said, not once, but twice. So why is it important? It's a turning point. It's a key moment as Jesus, mission accomplished, returns to the Father in heaven, to his throne, where he will be exalted forever. But it's also the dawning of a new chapter, the start of the church. 
It's the grand finale of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it ushers in a new day for Jesus' disciples to go into all the world, to tell everyone, everywhere, the good news about Jesus. So what does it mean for us today? And what difference does it make? We're going to look at this under three headings. The first is that because of the ascension, we have a hope. The second is because of the ascension, we have a mission. And the third is because of the ascension, we have a helper. We have a hope, we have a mission, and we have a helper. So let's get into it. There, there are two, or sorry, three accounts of the ascension in the Bible. There's one in the book of Mark, and then two written by Luke, in Luke's Gospel and in Acts. And we're going to look at the Luke and Acts ones today. They're written by the same man to the same audience, Theophilus. But it's worth noting they have some significant differences, which over the years has caused some bother. Because people go, well, why would Luke, if it was him... write about the same thing in two such different ways. Surely if it was him, he would have just done it once, particularly given the fact that he says he's writing to this same person both times. And it's caused people to question the authenticity and reliability of Luke's writing. But I think there are some very good reasons why Luke wrote about it twice and why on those two occasions he wrote about it differently. Most significantly is the positioning of the two accounts in what he was writing. See, in Luke, in Luke chapter 24, the ascension is the, is the climax. It's the end. It's the conclusion. It's the great full stop at the end of all that he's been writing to Theophilus about. It's the last part of the story. It's the grand finale. But in Acts, it's the beginning. It's like the curtain raiser on what's yet to come. And if you're wanting to convey both of those things, you'll do it in different ways. So we're going to start with the account from Luke 24, and then we'll jump forward into Acts Now, to give some context, Luke has spent the bulk of chapter 24 giving a couple of detailed accounts about resurrected Jesus and his meeting with his disciples. He's given us detailed accounts about him walking with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus and eating with them. He's given us an account of Jesus uh, appearing with his disciples in other contexts, and eating with them. He's spent his time in Luke 24 underlining again and again and again that Jesus really has risen from the dead, that there can be no doubt about it. He he really is bodily, physically resurrected from the dead, meeting, speaking with, eating with, fellowshipping with his disciples. He really is the king of heaven, the long-awaited rescuer. He paints a picture 
in this chapter of the disciples in these encounters as skeptical at first, then convinced as doubting and then filled with joy and wonder, almost giddy with excitement as the realization dawns on them. It really is him. He really has raised from the dead. He really has conquered the grave. He really has risen. And then we get to this point at the end of the chapter as the disciples are celebrating that, convinced of that truth about who Christ is. We read from verse 44 together. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus reminds them again in this parting exchange with his disciples who he is, the Messiah, the rescuer. And he reminds them then of the mission of God. Notice what he says, that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name of Jesus to all nations. This message of hope, of good news, a message of life for the whole world. This is what's going to happen, guys, Jesus is saying. And then he says, you are witnesses of these things. It's like, this is what's going to happen, and you're going to do it. And then he continues. It's like a, but wait, there's more. From verse 49, he says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When Jesus promises them what his Father has promised, he says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. Come to dwell in them, to dwell in his disciples, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to equip them, to lead them into truth. Power from on high. The power of God for the mission of God. We read on from verse 50. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at their temple, praising God. As Jesus ascended into heaven before them, there's another underlining in Luke's writing that Jesus was God. The disciples recognized who he was. They understood the implications of that. They understood the implications that because he was God, because he had come, because he had paid the price for their sins, because he had conquered over the grave and was risen, because he had now gone to be with the Father, it meant they had a hope. And it means we have a hope. 
Notice Luke doesn't really major on the mission here in Luke 24. He kind of mentions it, it, like it's there, but he's really continuing to remind us who Jesus is. He ends his writing on a note of worship and celebrations. Like the disciples have understood who Jesus was. They've understood the implications of that for their lives and for their future. Throughout his gospel, Luke has kept pointing out again and again who Jesus is, and he ends by making sure we're clear that the disciples knew who he was, and in response, they worshipped him. And as he ascended to heaven, what did they do? They stayed at the temple, praising God. They were worshipping because of who Jesus is and what he'd done. See, Luke wants us to know that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did live the perfect life that you couldn't live. He fulfilled every requirement of the law that you couldn't fulfill, that he did really die on a cross, and in so doing, take the punishment that you rightly deserved for your sins. He really was separated on the cross from God the Father so that you could be united with God the Father. He really did rise again, bodily, conquering death, so that you, if you trust in him, could know life and life eternal, that he really is fully man and fully God, and he really is now in heaven a man at the right hand of the Father, the the firstborn over all creation, the, the first fruits of the resurrection, that Those who trust in him will be just as he is one day. (laughs) Bodily resurrected in heaven with the Father forever. This is good news. (laughs) Because Jesus, having defeated sin and death, has gone back to be with the Father, we have a hope that one day we will join him in the presence of God forever. Because of the ascension, we have a hope, a great and glorious hope. I just want to stop and celebrate right there, don't you? It's amazing. And, you know, you deserve eternal separation from God. So do I. But because of Jesus, we can have life. Unity with God. Amazing. The disciples understood that. They knew what the ascension meant. And their response was to worship God. It makes you want to worship, doesn't it? It does me. Doesn't it make your heart glad that because of Jesus, God hasn't counted your sins against you? It's so good. And that's a right response. That's appropriate. If you know that your sins are forgiven, then your heart should be glad. There's cause for rejoicing. Something I've been thinking about recently, I think as a church community, we've done earnest quite well 
for the last few years since we launched. And there's, there's an appropriate seriousness to our faith. And that's okay. That's good. That's appropriate. There's a right soberness to wanting to live in a way that honors God and, and blesses those around us. That's right. That's appropriate. That's okay. That's good. But there should also be a joy and a celebration that marks who we are as a people. When we understand the hope we have, when we understand our sins forgiven, there should be a rejoicing. We have a hope. Oh, what a hope. But it doesn't stop there. And here's the thing, because some Christians want to stay there. A bit like the disciples did in Acts 24, actually, in that account. They went to the temple and they worshipped God. There's a right response in worshipping. You know, I've heard Christians say things like, oh, I just love being together with other Christians to worship. I'm like, yeah, me too, it's great. But some people, I think, would want to do that all day, every day. Have you ever met those, like, just like church service junkies, like they, they, they have UCB on in the car so they can make sure that they're listening to worship music when they're in the car and then they get into a meeting and they, they would just all their time if they could. I'm not saying that's a completely bad thing, but I think if we stop there, we miss the point. See, we think that we want to be like the disciples at the ends of Luke's account here. They spent their time in the temple praising God. All their time in the temple praising God. But we've got to recognize this, first up. For them, this wasn't a private affair. The temple was a very public place. And it wasn't full of Jesus' followers. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where the Pharisees, who just had Jesus put to death, were. <laughs> See, for us here on a Sunday or in life groups or at a conference or somewhere else you might go to gather and worship and enjoy that moment, that's one thing. But these guys were in public, worshipping God because of Christ, actually in a, an environment where they may well have been persecuted severely for what they were doing. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I love worshipping together. I love gathering to worship, to celebrate what Christ has done for us. It's vital that we do that as believers. Jenny reminded us of that earlier. And actually, it's where this all ends up, right? <laughs> so if you open Revelation and you skip to the end, where does it end up? People from every tribe and tongue and nation, more than you could possibly count, gathered around the throne, worshipping, crying out, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. But we're not there yet. And if that's where we stop now, then we've missed the point, actually. See, because if that's what it was all about, 
if that was the only thing we were supposed to do as Christ followers, as believers, then actually you'd think the most sensible option would be for God to just take us as soon as we become Christians. Like if that's what it was all about, then think, repent, faith in Jesus, beam me up, Scotty. But God doesn't do that though, does he? I don't know if you've noticed that. We're all still here. (laughs) He doesn't do that. Why? It's because from the time that Christ ascended to the Father, the primary way through which people will meet him, through which people will hear the gospel, through which people will come to find new and lasting life in all its fullness is through his body, through his bride, through his people, the church, you and me. That's why we're here. So the ascension means that we have a hope and that is cause for great rejoicing. We have incredible cause for celebration. But the ascension also means that we have a mission. God doesn't beam us up and we shouldn't lock ourselves away behind closed doors. Guys, we have a mission. This news about Jesus is so good that if we've really understood it, if we've experienced it, there's no way we'll keep it to ourselves. C.H. Spurgeon says this. He says, as soon as a man has found Christ, he begins to find others for Christ. I will not believe you have tasted the honey of the gospel if you can eat it to yourself. See, there's something about us as people that's just kind of inbuilt into who we are that when we find something great and praiseworthy and worth celebrating, we just want to tell other people, yeah? When you see an accomplishment that captures your heart or when, if you're a parent, your child does something that, that you're just like, wow, so like when you have a first baby and they utter their first words, you just want to tell everyone. Like they can say, <laughs> when you get married, you want to tell everyone. Or when you get engaged, like she said yes. It's good news that we feel compelled to share. The gospel should be no different. But mission is so central to who we are that it could just as easily be said that the mission has a church as the church has a mission. It's integral to who we are. In fact, J.D. Greer, a church leader and author, says this. He says, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out together. I read that this week and went, ouch. But he's right. He's right. We're called and saved that we might go and proclaim hope and life and freedom to those around us. And if we're not doing that, then we're not actually being obedient to the call of God on our lives. In the book of Matthew, chapter 28, we get an account of the resurrected Jesus before the ascension, laying out this mission for his disciples. It's the same for us as it was for them. We read this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The mission is clear, isn't it? It isn't rocket science. When you become a Christian, you're united with Christ and in turn with his body, the church. And as part of the church, you are called into and engaged in his mission to go. To go and tell others about him. To go and share the good news. To share with others what has gripped your heart, that cause for celebration that you have, that wells up in joy. To share that with others. To let them know that they might come and have life and life in all its fullness too. Yet often, not just us, but often, look through the history of the church, we can tend towards celebrating the hope we have and shying away from the mission to which we've been called. So we're going to look at Acts 1. How does Luke handle the ascension in Acts 1? We read this from Acts chapter 1 together, verse 1 onwards. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. We've just read about that in Luke. Now that Luke says all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication being that Jesus' work was going to continue. But Jesus has ascended to heaven. So through whom is Jesus' work going to continue? Through his people, the church. We read on from verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke with his disciples. Just as we've looked at loads over the last months in Luke's gospel about the kingdom of God, about what it looks like to live under his rule and reign, to live as citizens of his kingdom but also about the extension of his rule and reign, the mission of God. We read on from verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Luke now gives us a glimpse back into something that he didn't unpack first time out for Theophilus. He says this, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They gathered around and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the mission of the church. To be his witnesses. We read on from verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Just pause a moment. As you would be, right? This, I, <laughs> the glimpse that Luke gives us here, I think is quite amusing, but also I'm like, man, I would have done no different. Jesus is with them, talking, reminding them of the mission to which they have now been called as he ascends to the Father, that he's going to pour out the Spirit on them, and then he just starts going up. <laughs> I'm like, I probably, like them, would have been looking intently up into the sky as he went. The account continues, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Like it must have been quite a sight. But I wonder from the account, and we don't know, but I wonder how long the disciples were stood there just looking. Like, he's gone. That was weird. Yeah. Think he's coming back? Don't know. Like, how long were they there for? We don't know. <laughs> but it, they were looking intently. And I think it must have been a while. Because it was long enough that God felt the need to send a couple of angels to tap them on the shoulder and remind them what they were supposed to be doing. Luke reminds us again with the ascension in Acts 1 who Jesus is, but now his focus is firmly on the mission. As the book of Acts opens up, which is going to tell the story of the mission of the church as Jesus' disciples do go and proclaim good news, do go and see Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people hear the good news of the gospel and find life and hope and freedom in Jesus Christ. As he opens it up, his focus is now on the mission. And he ends this account of the ascension through the mouths of these angels, effectively saying, Jesus is coming back. And you'll have all eternity together. But now there's a mission. Get on with it. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The two angels asked. You kind of think, it's obvious, isn't it? It's like, because he's, we well, he just went. <laughs> but the point was that in their inactivity, in their staring intently, Actually, they'd already begun in disobedience. He'd said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there for my spirit to be poured out so that you might be my witnesses. And he went and they stood there. Wow. 
So these angels came and refocused the disciples. Got them to get their attention in the right place, in obedience to Jesus' command, rather than in wondering where he went or how he went and when he was coming back or how he would come back. Where he went, he said he's coming back. How long do you think he's going to be? Do you know, man, there's so many people who are still asking that question today, speculating. They might not be stood on a hillside near Galilee. But they're still doing the same thing. Like, when's he, like, when's he coming? It's, maybe it's now. Like, these are the signs. This is, this is it. These are, it's definitely going to be the millennium. Or it's definitely going to be... I spoke to someone recently. It's definitely going to be 20, 2033. 2,000 years after the resurrection. That's, it's definitely going to be then. That's it. Just people still doing the same thing and the angels would say the same to them as they said to the disciples. Be filled with the Spirit and go on mission. He is going to come back. Know that for sure. You don't need to know when. Just do as he's told you to. So you think, cool. Let's do it then, yeah? So we've got a hope. Yes. We've got a mission. Yes. Let's get to it. But there's something else, isn't there? Don't forget. Because of the ascension, we have a hope and we have a mission, but we also have a helper. We have a helper. And we'd be crazy to try and do it on our own. In John 16, we read as Jesus talks to the disciples about the fact that he was going to ascend to the Father and that as he was, he was going to pour out the Holy Spirit. He says this to them. He says, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Without the ascension, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been given. In Luke and Acts, we read Jesus' instruction to his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for his Spirit. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The natural result of receiving the Spirit, Jesus says, is that you'll tell others about him. You notice that? He says, like it wasn't a command. He says, be filled with, it doesn't say, be filled with my spirit and then go out. It was just a statement of fact. That when the Holy Spirit has come on you, you shall be my witnesses. It will happen. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. The words shall be here. I know this sounds kind of like geeky, maybe. But the words shall be are in the indicative, not the imperative. In other words, Jesus doesn't recommend or command that they become witnesses. It's not imperative. It's not the imperative. He says that they would be witnesses if they are full of the Spirit. 
it's indicative of being filled with the Spirit. In other words, Spirit-filled people, truly Spirit-filled people are missional people. People who are filled with the Spirit of God cannot help but tell people about the goodness of God. You will be a witness if you're full of the Spirit. That's what Scripture seems to suggest, quite unambiguously. So if we want to be witnesses, which I think if we're Christians, we will want to be witnesses. If we want to be witnesses, then we need to be filled with the Spirit. The best training program, the greatest amount of enthusiasm, is going to be of very little effectiveness without the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to wait for the Spirit. He knew that without the Spirit, they wouldn't take the good news across the road, let alone to the other side of the world. So he says, don't try and go without the Holy Spirit. You try and do it in your own strength, it's not going to work. The disciples return to Jerusalem from staring at the clouds and wait for the Spirit, just as Jesus told them. And the Spirit's poured out upon them. We could read on in Acts 2, but what happens? Many of you know it. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit's poured out, and bang, mission. The birth of the church. It's an amazing account as the Spirit's poured out on the disciples, and the disciples head out into the streets, declaring good news. I mean, amazingly, supernaturally, by the empowering of God's Spirit, they go out and proclaim good news in all the languages of the people who are there so that the people can all hear the good news about Jesus in their own language and 3,000 people respond to the gospel that day as Peter addresses a crowd. It's incredible. Why? Well, they're full of the Spirit. But they had to wait. And there are times when we should wait. They needed to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. But the Spirit has been poured out. We receive the Spirit at the moment we accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 tells us if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. If you're a Christian... You have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the power of God at work in you. You have a hope. You have a mission. And you have a helper. It's good news. But we need to go on being filled. When we're told in Scripture, it's a continuous verb. It's like a present continuous, like be filled and go on being filled. It's an ongoing act. It's not just a one-time thing. We need to go on being filled. See, the Spirit is a gift. He gladly meets with you to equip you, to comfort you, to open your eyes to truth, to point you continually back to Jesus and to propel you into mission. And I want us to pray for that today.
together. If you're here this afternoon and you've heard what I've said and you have thought to yourself, you know, I don't actually have a hope like the one you professed earlier. When you said, like when you know your sins are forgiven, I don't think I have that. Then I want to invite you today to say, I want that for myself. I'm going to invite you in just a minute to respond. And we're going to do this slightly differently to the way we often do. Um, Johnny and the guys are going to come and lead us in worship, but I don't know. We might have to move chairs or do something, but I think I'd like to invite you to actually move, <laughs> to respond, to say, I, I want this. And so if you today are saying, I want that hope, for myself, then I want to encourage you in a moment when we sing to come and there'll be someone here to pray with you and to talk to you about that. But I think this probably is going to be more of us. Maybe you're a Christian and you think, I've been trying to live this mission but I've been trying to do it without the helper. I've been trying to do it in my own strength. Like, I, I know I should tell people about Jesus, but just, like, I, I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> but I'm not really getting anywhere. And I know I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit today. And there's an opportunity to pray with you in a moment. I'd love you to come down for prayer for that. So if you are not a Christian and you'd like to respond, if you know you need to be filled again with the Spirit, you know you need the helper to propel you out into mission, then I want to encourage you to respond. And lastly, maybe you feel like your hope's faded a bit. And when I said, I won't believe you've tasted the honey of the gospel if you're content to eat it to yourself, you thought, I think I need a fresh taste of that. Because it doesn't excite me in the way it once did. I don't feel that joy at the gospel, that thrill, the knowledge of my sins forgiven that I once did. And as we come back to worship in a moment, I want to encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit would give you a fresh understanding and appreciation of what Christ has done for you. This is a really, we kind of finished, we're going to pray together and we're going to respond, but I just feel compelled to share this. I think it ties in with what Amya shared about the goodness of God and I was laying hold of the goodness of God and, and I found out just before we started today something that made me smile about my son. So Reuben went last week uh, on holiday to Cornwall with some friends and he was a little bit anxious. The first time he's gone on his own on the train, we got him on a train at Reading and he sat on his own on the train all the way down to Truro. 
Um, but at the station, we spoke to the people there about it. Uh, and, you know, they're good with taking children on. And so we said it's his first time. And the lady was really helpful. And she said, oh, I'll speak to the guard. And then as the train pulled in, she's kind of looking at the carriages. And we walked past first class. And there was really next to no one in it. She said, oh, it's really, it's really empty in there today. I'm just going to speak to the guard for you. We'd paid for just a normal ticket. But she spoke to the guard and said, would you let him sit in first class so you can keep an eye on him? It's closer to where the guard sits. Of course. And in a moment, Reuben was upgraded to first class. He hadn't, we hadn't paid for it. He hadn't done anything to deserve it. But he had a first class ticket all of a sudden. And on that journey the people came through the first-class carriage with a refreshments trolley. And it's not like the refreshments trolley normally on the train where you pay five pounds for a bottle of sparkling water that's this big. You can have it. But Reuben felt like he wasn't supposed to be there. Like he didn't have a first-class ticket. And so he didn't have anything off the trolley. And the guy came back to him again and said, like, you know, like, you don't have to pay for it. But Reuben still felt like I'm not entitled to this. I haven't earned this. I haven't paid for this. And I think sometimes we can respond like that in the way we live our Christian lives. God wants to pour out his spirit on us now. Let's stand together, shall we? You know, you might today think, but I haven't haven't earned this. Like, mine isn't a first-class ticket. But God wants to say, it's yours. Because of Christ, the price has been paid Jesus said, the Father will willingly pour out the Spirit on all who ask. So let's ask, shall we? If you are...